You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode, I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about the first missionary to Tibet, Annie Taylor. Taylor wrote a book which provides the details of her journey, bits of her childhood, personal letters, newspaper articles, etc. It's in the public domain, so you can read it for free. It's a pretty simple read. It's less than 90 pages. It's very interesting stuff. I'll link in the description if you want to read it. It's called Pioneering in Tibet. But if you look it up on Amazon, you're going to get another missionary, so I'll link it for easy access. The way Annie Taylor opens her book is amusing. There was a style back in the day where you would just kind of start back at the beginning of your life and work your way up, as if to give the reader a sense of why you are the way that you are. And it works really well, actually. She opens her book this way. I was born in Egremont, Cheshire in England, and I'm the second child in a family of five sons and five daughters. My governesses and nurses say that I was the most troublesome child and very full of mischief. This is an important thing to note because as we'll see as we go through her story that she was a very obstinate individual and this caused her lots of grief throughout her life, but also made her able to withstand the trials that she would go through, and there are many of them. She was born in 1856, and when she was seven, she was diagnosed with a heart condition. A couple years later, she suffered a bout of bronchitis, which made her heart condition even worse. And from this point on, she wasn't expected to live very long, and she was pulled out of school because what was the point? And she did whatever she wanted to for a few years. And I I wanted to pause here for a moment because what would it be like living like that? Like, you know that at any moment your heart could give out and you could die. And then what would it be like being the parent of of a child that probably isn't going to make it or you've been told is not going to make it? You're basically a ticking time bomb of grief. So the parents have a lot of guilt. They don't want to punish you a lot. There's the fear, obviously, that at any moment you're going to lose them. And so I get the impression that Annie kind of grew up doing whatever she wanted to because her parents didn't want in any way to impede upon any pleasure in her life that she could seek out for because she wasn't long for the world. But I get the idea that God used this in her life as well, that she was accustomed to getting what she wanted and she would work really hard to get it. And when she was 13 years old, she became a Christian and she writes this. I had been in the habit of going to church or chapel, but the only part of the sermon to which I listened was that addressed to sinners, which I mentally called my part. One Sunday, when kneeling down as others did at the close of the service, a voice seemed to say to me, If this is your part of the sermon, it's your choice, because Christ died for you. There and then I accepted him as my Savior, and upon reaching home, I took the Bible to my room and decided to follow whatever God should teach me through his word. She knows that she soon became convinced that she couldn't go out riding with her father on Sundays anymore, and this was where their rift began. Her father was a really wealthy man. He was an international shipping, and he shipped goods from the UK to Australia to India and lots of other places. His children never wanted for material goods. When she was 16, she attended a lecture where she heard the son of Robert Moffat speak. Robert Moffat was the father-in-law of David Livingston, and much like his son-in-law, his missionary exploits were well-known and incredibly inspiring. She knows that at that time, Moffat's son considered women to be more of a hindrance in the mission field than a help, and for the first time in her life, she felt sorry she'd been born a girl. And a family friend encouraged her to start working for the Lord where she was, and so she did. She began to regularly visit sick girls wherever she could, and she could no longer find pleasure in the things of high society. She wanted to be working for the Lord, not gallivanting across the dance floor. And her parents were furious at her retreat from society because they had no sympathy for, as she said, my Christian life and work. 
Her father told her that she was selfish, and in a bid to convince him that she could go away and get out of their hair, she asked for permission to join the mission field. And he agreed, thinking she's not going to follow through, but she did. She enrolled at London Hospital for medical training, and when she finished there, she attempted to further her training in another hospital, and her father went back on his promise, because now it seemed like she was actually going to stick with this thing, and so he refused to support her, cutting her off completely, and he told her she could become a nurse in the army, but never in the mission field. And she was furious that he got back on his word and sold some of her jewelry to put herself through school and become a midwife. She says that while she was finishing up, her mother became a Christian and gave Annie's missionary endeavors her blessing. When she graduated, her father had left with the rest of the family to go to Australia, but he left a letter behind for her which stated that he'd pay for anything she wanted to bring with her so that she would not lack in comforts. And he also left her papers to take passages from China to either London or Australia once she'd gotten tired of being a missionary. So, as you can tell, he held her ambitions in really high esteem. She was accepted to work with Hudson Taylor at the China Inland Mission, and she said that the friendship of him and his wife was one of the great joys of her life, and she still received letters of love and sympathy from them long after she'd left China for Tibet. She left England for China in October of 1884 when she was 28 years old, and we don't have exact details about how her life and ministry in China was specifically, but from various sources, including herself, We learned that she was a very difficult and abrasive person to get along with, and she drove everybody crazy, to the point that she was eventually given an ultimatum, go back to England or strike it on your own. At this point, she'd already felt impressed upon her to go to Tibet, and she wanted to get all the way to the capital, and no European had ever been to the holy city of Lhasa. The landscape of Tibet was incredibly difficult. The political situation between China, Tibet, Russia, and Britain was particularly tense, China liked to play the sides against each other and wanted any trading with Tibet to be solely with them, so they worked hard to break down communication and sour relations, particularly between Tibet and Britain. Tibet's climate was harsh, and it's known as the roof of the world because of its elevation. Crossing through required traveling through many dangerous mountain passes, being exposed to the elements for long periods of time, and living in constant fear of bandit attacks, which are almost a given when traveling anywhere in Tibet. But she knew all of that, and still she took God at his word that Tibet was not exempt from the Great Commission. She said, When the Lord bade his witnesses go out into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature, he knew about Tibetan exclusiveness. We have received no orders from the Lord that are impossible to be carried out. And in 1888, she left China for the tip-top of India, very close to the Tibetan border. And she wanted to learn the specific dialect of Tibetan spoken in Lhasa, and the city itself is much closer to India than it is to China, hence why she chose to study here instead of in China. And once she'd learned the language, she pushed further north, close to a Tibetan frontier town just inside the border. And what's kind of funny about reading people's autobiographies is how they often leave out what we would consider to be kind of important details. For example, when she was in this town, the people would frequently ask her how she wanted to be buried when she died, and she said she wasn't worried about dying. But then she says they had a custom of praying people dead and worked to make sure their prayers were effective. And so she tells this story about how she was eating some eggs and rice, and when she inferred from the conversation that there was something going on with these eggs, she doesn't elaborate, so I'm imagining it was something like this. Those eggs sure are delicious, aren't they? Make sure you eat them all. They are to die for. Sure enough, she got sick and she recovered, and that's about all that she said about that, which is, you know, one of those things. I'd like some more information, but we don't get any. And while she was there, she gained her most faithful friend, the only person in her life who never left her side, a runaway Tibetan slave named Ponso. And he was escaping from a vicious master and badly damaged his feet during the ordeal. And he was brought to Annie, who was also practicing medicine in the village. She nursed him back from the brink of death, and he actually became a Christian after spending a couple years with Annie. So she's been there for a while, and then she decides to change plans entirely 
and decides to go to Lhasa from the Chinese side. And she doesn't really explain why, but there's a couple reasons that it could be. One, she was worried for her life with all the attempted murders. Two, she couldn't secure a caravan to go up with her. Tibet was overrun with bandits, so in order to travel as safely as possible, you needed a caravan with some fighting men. But probably the most likely fact is that China had easier access to the tea road that traders had been using to go from China to India to Tibet and even Myanmar for a very long time. And this is the most common route and the one that's the highest probability of success. And from where she was on the border of India, she's relatively close. She's like less than 300 miles from Lhasa. She and Ponso set sail for Shanghai on China's eastern coast and then sail northwest up the river to the eastern frontier of Tibet, putting her roughly 1,200 miles from Lhasa. And there were several large monasteries in the new village, and she spent a great deal of time learning culture and customs and befriending many helpful lamas, or superior ones. Lama is a term used for great teachers of Buddhism, and they're usually leaders of local monasteries. And it was here that she began dressing like a native Tibetan. She cut her hair very short, covered it with a fur cap, and she wore long, dark robes. And she spent a year here learning all that she could before the time was finally right for her to attempt the trip to Lhasa. She was finally able to gather up enough people to attempt the journey. She and Ponso added a Chinese Muslim named Noga and his wife to their party. And Noga had promised his mother-in-law that he would return to Lhasa with his wife in three years. I was making good on that promise, and he offered to be her guide as long as she funded the expedition, to which she readily agreed. They soon became a party of six, and together with 16 horses for riding and carrying tents, gifts, bartering, supplies, and provisions for two months, they set out for Lhasa in September of 1892. I mentioned earlier that Tibet had a real problem with bandits, and within four days, they had their first encounter. A group of eight men gathered around a fire, drinking tea. They saw the Taylor party, but their guns were old and they were slow to light the tender boxes, giving our guys the upper hand, and after a few tense minutes, they had run them off. And a few days later, they overtook a friendly group of Mongols and joined up with them. Little did they know, though, the Mongols had just robbed another tribe, and that that tribe was out for retribution and recompense. And they were soon outnumbered, overpowered, and forced to surrender, having lost two men and a lot of their belongings they were allowed to pass, but only because it was against the bandit code of honor to fire upon a woman. And they didn't realize that Annie was a woman, and so they had to kind of let her go on, lest there be some real problems. The next bit of the journey was particularly treacherous. They were entering the territory of the Gallic tribe. They were fearsome, but also fun-loving, and they would ride out in groups of one or two thousand, raiding neighboring tribes that never stood a chance. They weren't especially brutal, refusing to use violence unless the tribe tried to defend themselves. They often brought women and children along to watch the fun. None of the tribes were numerous enough or united enough to mount any actual resistance or retaliation, so instead they raided passing caravans to make a living. So practically speaking, the Gallics were the entire reason Tibet was dangerous. But lucky for Annie, when they entered the Gallic territory, they were brought to the chief, who turned out to be a woman, who took a liking to Annie and allowed them to stay for a while as guests. When they left, they were given additional supplies as well as an escort to the end of the Gallic's lands. Now, as they carried on and they climbed in elevation, the temperature dropped, the oxygen thinned, and shelter became harder and harder to find, and they were exposed to the elements for long periods of time. One of their party, a tall, strong young man, succumbed to the elements, and Annie convinced their Gallic escorts to stop briefly and allow them to dig a shallow grave in the frozen earth. And oftentimes in a caravan, as they ascended through the mountains, people would die of exposure, and you couldn't stop for them or you ran the risk of joining them. And that night after they buried him, they heard the wolves howling around his grave, which would be really, really eerie. After their escorts left them, they continued on until they ran into the home of a lovely Tibetan couple, and they had quite the love story. He had been a monk who fell in love, and being celibate and having taken vows was unable to marry her. 
So they ran off in the night, and he shed his robes and became a tailor. And they were a very sweet couple, and Annie convinced them to join her party and help them. Now that they were down two men, they agreed and proved indispensable. Soon they were firmly in the heart of the mountain. Nogu, the Muslim man and his wife, now confident that Annie was isolated enough, showed their true colors and attempted to murder her several times. It seems that the goal was to rob her and murder her as soon as they kind of got her away from people. But it was really strange because they seemed very dedicated to the murder part of the plan. And they worked very hard to make sure that they succeeded. And luckily, because of Ponso and the other couple, they were able to stave them off long enough that he soon gave up and instead ran off with one of their tents and a lot of their supplies and left them with only one tent and basically nothing. They had to sell the other tent for food and were left to sleep in holes they found as the night fell. And it's purely a miracle that they survived in December in Tibet on a mountain. Uh, You know the part in The Lord of the Rings where they are going up the mountain and the wind is screaming all around them? That's exactly what this was like, minus the chanting of Saruman. And you got to remember this point, and maybe you've forgotten, because as you're listening to this story, you're like, she's incredible. Like, how are they still alive? But she's this spoiled, rich girl with a heart condition, and she is surviving where other men, many men, have perished. So you can really see the hand of God upon her as she's going from place to place, because there is no way in her condition, with her upbringing, that she should have survived much beyond the beginning of the trek. And all they had for food was Tibetan tea, which consists of yak butter and cheese mixed with black tea leaves. And at their altitude, the tea boiled while it was still kind of tepid, not really hot. And the water would be boiling while ice floated on top of it, which sounds awful. And Annie was also suffering from frequent heart palpitations due to her heart condition and due to the altitude. But still, on the Christmas day, she endeavored to make a boiled pudding. And there's a YouTube channel called Townsend's, which has all sorts of little neat things about the 18th century in America. And he did an episode on how to make boiled pudding. And I wish I could say that I watched it for this episode, but I'm a nerd, so I saw it months ago. But anyway, you make the dough, you turn it out into a cloth, and you wind it up tight. You boil it for several hours. You remove it, and you allow it to dry out or cure. Pudding is kind of an deceptive term. It's actually more like a bread. Now, after she made it, she complained because it turned out soggy, which is so funny. She had such an indomitable spirit that even in the midst of starvation, attempted murder and exposure, she complained about the quality of her Christmas pudding. Now, unbeknownst to our group, Nogu and his wife had gone ahead of them and told everybody they passed about the European witch who could see through mountains to steal their gold and had bound herself up with precious jewels. This is actually kind of a smart tactic because it made her seem both suspicious and also made her a target. And Nogu also alerted the Tibetan officials in Lhasa. And when they were about three days out, they were ambushed and arrested. Officials were brought from Lhasa itself, and she was questioned at length, and she refused to answer any question that she found to be impolite and refused to be treated in a demeaning manner. Now, this seems strange to us because her life is literally on the line, but her behavior is much more in line with the culture of Tibet. And as you recall, she spent that entire like year on the Chinese side of Tibet learning cultural customs. And so... This was something that seems strange to us, because wouldn't you kind of be very subservient and submissive and be like, please let me go? But it was more acceptable for her to stand up for herself and stand up for her right and dignities than it was for her to appear humble. And so the word came from Lhasa to treat her with respect and dignity. And before long, they realized their informant, Nogu, had been a liar. But they held on to him for the duration of the trial. That's kind of where his story ends. We have no idea what happened to him, if he was dealt with or if he was let go. We don't know. Now, Annie was told that she could actually pass through, but the officials would be killed if they let her enter the holy city. And surely she, a religious teacher, would not want that. Now, obviously, she did not want that. She she turned around, being equipped with an escort and supplies. And she and the group turned back the way that they had come. 
And this is not the outcome that anybody wanted or expected. I think that she prepared to die at the hands of bandits, but I think that being turned around only three days from Lhasa was something that no one necessarily expected. And what's even more depressing about this is that the way that Lhasa sits in the clouds on top of the mountain, there's the real potential that they could have seen it from where they were. And how that make you feel, because you can look at it, you're so close, but you have to turn around at the very last possible second. And to make matters worse, the weather was even more brutal now than before, and the locals that had been so friendly before were suspicious now because of Nogu and his rumors. Except for the Gallics, who seemed completely unfazed by anything that went on around them. And it was now April of 1894, and it had taken them seven months to get back to the border where they'd begun. They'd lost on their man, they had lost several horses, they nearly starved to death. And this is kind of interesting, I didn't mention this earlier, but Tibetan horses survive on raw goat meat during the winter months, which is such a strange thing you wouldn't imagine that they would eat meat. It's kind of disconcerting that they do, but uh, what else are they going to eat? There's no grass, and as you're traveling, you can't afford to just keep this giant supply of grain for them, so they feed them raw goat meat. But Annie didn't have any of that on hand, and so a lot of the horses starved and were forced to eat the woolen clothes from Annie and their party to survive, and a lot of them didn't. But one thing, though, one positive is the lovely couple from Tibet that had joined them and had helped save her life from Nogu and his wife, they arrived safely at home and they lived happily ever after. They gave talks to the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, where her father was a member, and they donated some of the Tibetan cultural items. Annie told of her journey and her plans to start a missions organization entitled the Tibetan Pioneer Mission. She rallied several people to go back with her, and they landed in India near the border where she had first begun her language and cultural studies, although away from people who had tried to kill her with poison. However, within a year, the mission was in shambles, many missionaries citing Annie's leadership and leaving for China Inland Mission. She still had Ponso, his wife, and two of these to help her, though, and a couple years later, they were able to move into Tibet proper in a town called Yantong. Britain and Tibet had reached a trade agreement which allowed the British to go there to trade, and Annie found her way in there as well. Ponso and his wife set up a small shop, and Annie followed them, becoming a trader, but also she was well-versed in medicinals from being a nurse, and so she did that as well. And it was while she was here that William Carey, the famous missionary of India, paid her a visit and took her diary to transcribe and publish. And it's actually available in the public domain as well, and I'll link it in the description along with her autobiography if you want to read it. I think she's a very good writer. She's a very simplistic style that is just easy to read, and it flows really well. And it's not like you're getting hung up on all these details that don't matter. She gets right to the point. She tells you what you want to know that's kind of interesting, except for murder attempts and things like that. But overall, it's very easy to read and it's very fun. And she wrote this about being a trader. She said, The trading is not a hardship. If Christ could make tents for Christ, surely we can do this for our master. We are first of all missionaries, and this is well understood by the Tibetans and Chinese. The Tibetans would rather trade with us than with the Chinese and willingly listen to the gospel message. When people would come to trade, they would invite her to sit by their fires, and she would tell them the gospel and hand out tracts in Tibetan. And after not even a year of being there, she had given away over 3,000 tracts. And others wanted to know more, so she gave them the gospels. And she'd given away 500 of them and heard that they were being read at monasteries far and wide, even in Lhasa. The following year, she'd given out over 1,000. And that Christmas, so many people had gathered to eat and sing hymns together that the floor broke. Everyone fell three feet unharmed, and they had to divide into groups. But that was not to last, unfortunately. And in 1904, the British invaded Tibet due to the threat of a Russian takeover. This lasted for three years. Annie cared for the victims of the war, but eventually it proved too much for her. 
She experienced a sharp downward spiral and her sister had to come bring her back to England, where she was placed in an asylum where she stayed until her death in 1922 at the age of 66, having spent 20 years of her life pursuing Tibet for the Lord. The following was published in a magazine called The Christian while Annie was still in ministry. Livingston, by his great journeys, opened the way for the gospel into Africa. So our sister expects that God will use her journey to pave the road for missionaries. She believes that the promise stands good. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given unto you. In the name of the Lord God, she has taken possession of Tibet, fully anticipating that as soon as the right men arise to go forward and possess the land, the way will be made plain and the gospel will be published in this inaccessible region. Tibet is still an inaccessible region today, having been formally annexed by China in 1950 in a bloody and hostile takeover, with egregious human rights abuses continuing into today. And what's happening with the Uyghurs today has been happening to Tibetans for over 70 years. Annie's story has a sad ending. We don't know what became of Ponso and his wife or any of the other people who heard the gospel and believed. Tibet today is still predominantly a Buddhist nation and scarcely more open now than it was 130 years ago. But Annie believed firmly, as shall we all, that we received no orders from the Lord which are impossible to carry out. So stay in prayer for Tibet. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to share it around on the socials and let others know what you're listening to. As always, thanks for listening to Mars and Missionaries. I'm Elise.